Welcome to this week's episode of the Big Book Living Alive podcast, a weekly podcast showcasing the 1993 Big Book Seminar presented by Joe and Charlie in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. I am your host, Brad S., and I am an alcoholic. I'll admit, the first couple times that I went through Joe and Charlie and got to this portion, I giggled a little bit, or, you know, there was the cringeworthy meeting that I went to, but... Our sexuality, my sexuality, is maturing, and that is thanks to my recovery, because we can't have a mature conversation about sex. We can't truly, I can't, truly engage on that deep a level when I am drinking, because I'm lying to my partner. So... This is the first of a couple of weeks that we will be looking at this portion of ourselves. Let's hear what Joe and Charlie have to say about our sexuality. Said many of us need an overhauling there. Now you older fellas don't get your hopes up. We're going to talk about mental sex rather than physical sex. But, But above all, we try to be sensible on this question. It's easy to get way off the track. Here we find human opinions running to extremes, absurd extremes perhaps. One set of voices cry that sex is a lust of our lower nature, a base necessity of procreation. Then we have the voices who cry for sex and more sex, who bewail the institution of marriage, who think that most of the troubles of the race are traceable sex causes. They think we do not have enough of it or it isn't the right kind. They see its significance everywhere. One school would allow no man flavor for his fare, and the other would have us all on a straight pepper diet. Now, we want to stay out of this controversy. We don't want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conducts. We all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? Well, thank God they just don't want to get into my sex conduct, you know. And we don't want to be the arbitrator of anyone's sex conduct. We're not going to say what's right or what's wrong for anyone. What I am going to do is tell you where I got my ideas about sex, and then you'll know that I needed an overhauling there, and you won't want to know anything else from me about it. <laughs> I said my dad was in the nut house. My mother was busy raising five kids or helping us get bigger, not necessarily raising us, and I was left on the streets to fend for myself. And uh, I went to school. We had sex education in school, by the way, but they called it recess back then. (laughs) And when I was about 11 or 12 or 13 years old, like Charlie, I began to think about this a lot. Got a lot of brain damage as a result of this. Had lots of questions, didn't know what to do. So I went to my mom and I said, Mom, I've been thinking an awful lot about sex. And she said, oh my God, Benny Joe. That's my name, Benny Joe. She said, oh, my God, Benny Joe said, don't even think about it. She said, you go to hell for thinking about it. Well, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about it a lot. And uh, she said, besides that, that's not a very good thing for a 12 or 13-year-old boy to be thinking about, and it's a dirty, filthy, rotten thing, she said. And you ought to save it for the one you love. (laughs) Think about it. So somehow I didn't believe her. And uh, so I went to the only source of information that was available to me. And in West Tulsa, Oklahoma, on the west side of the river, in front of a cafe called the Jenkins Cafe, 
there were some real wise, experienced, older men and women of about 15 and 16 years old who knew everything there was to know about sex, and you could ask them and they'd tell you. And these guys told me that they were having sex with these girls six and seven and eight times a night, they said. And sometimes they were having sex with two or three different women a night, they said. Now, later on, and I believed a lot of this until I get into Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the fallacy of it. I found out that they were lying to me, I hope. <laughs> but I based my life on that and my attitudes on what I heard on the streets, which was totally wrong. And then I remember the very first time I had sex. I was selfish, I was dishonest, I was self-seeking, I was frightened and inconsiderate, and I was also alone. <laughs> Would you like me to be the arbitrator of your sex conduct? That's why he's wearing glasses today. You can tell. <laughs> Bob just jerked his off. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder how many of us learned uh, our sex information the same way Joe learned it. Could I see your hands? A whole bunch of us, didn't we? <laughs> I think, uh, as we talked yesterday, this third common manifestation of self, this uh, fear and guilt and remorse we have associated with people we've heard in the past, this thing that filled that storeroom in the back of my head that blocks me off from the sunlight of the Spirit. And it seems as though we really hurt people faster and easier in the sexual area than we do any other way. So therefore, I think that's why the book is asking us to take a look at our past sex life, to see if perhaps we've hurt other people with it, and to maybe do something about it in the future. You see, sex for we human beings is a little bit different than it is for the other animals here on Earth. They have a sex life also. And the purpose of their sex life, just like ours, is primarily for reproduction. And if they didn't have it, then they would cease to exist also. Now, the difference between their sex life and ours is the fact that everything they do is at God's direction. They don't have this thing called self-will. And they can't make choices and they can't make decisions about their sex life. They can't even determine when they're going to have sex. That's all done at God's time and God's will. And when it's time for them to have sex, usually God signifies that by some physical change in the female of the species. The male senses that change, prepares himself, the two join together, and it's kind of like bang, bang, thank you, ma'am. And when it's over with, they normally go their separate ways. They don't think about doing it before they do it, and they don't think about doing it while they're doing it, and they don't think about doing it after they're through with it. They can't decide when they're going to do it. And they can't decide where they're going to do it. Usually they can't decide who they're going to do it with or how many they're going to do it with. And they can't even decide what position they're going to do it in. That's all done at God's direction. Therefore, you see very, very few emotional problems amongst these other animals when it comes to sex. 
I've never seen a cow yet on a psychiatrist's couch talking about sexual dysfunction. They just don't have those problems. We human beings are a little bit different. God gives us self-will. He gives us the right to choose and decide whatever we're going to do whenever we want to. We can have sex anytime we wish to, any day of the year that we wish to have it. We can decide who we're going to have sex with. We can decide whether we're going to do it with one or more. We can even decide how many times we're going to do it depending upon whether we're physically capable of that or not. We can even decide what position we're going to do it in. You know, they tell me there's something like 64 different positions that a human being can have sex in. I have no idea what they are. <laughs> in my lifetime, I only found three. <laughs> and two of those damn near kill me, I'm not sure of. So really what we're going to look at this morning is not so much how we do sex as to how we think about sex, because how we think about it determines what we do with it, and that in turn determines whether we're going to hurt other people or not. So again, I'd like to reread the part that Joe just read and, and take a look at this sex thing. He said, but above all, we tried to be sensible on this question. It's so easy to get way off the track. Here we find human opinions running to extremes, exert extremes perhaps. One set of voices cry that sex is a lust of our lower nature, a base necessity of procreation. And you and I have heard them all of our lives. They're the ones that say sex is a dirty thing. You ought to do it at one time in one position with one person only. And the only reason to do it is to reproduce yourselves. And if you enjoy it, it's a sinful thing. I've heard them as far back as I can remember. Then we have the voices who cry for sex and more sex, who bewail the institution of marriage, who think that most of the troubles of the race are traceable to sex causes. They think we do not have enough of it or that it isn't the right kind. They see its significance everywhere, and we hear them today. They say you ought to be able to have sex anytime you want to, anywhere you want to, with anybody you want to, as many times as you want to. You ought to be able to enjoy it every time, and if you don't, there must be something wrong with you. You know, maybe they would call that the sexual revolution. The main thing I see wrong with it, it happened 25 years too late for me to participate in it. <laughs> One school would allow a man no flavor for his fare, and the other would have us all on a straight pepper diet. Well, we want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? And I read that last statement with great relief because I knew this book was getting ready to condemn me for what I'd been in the past, and I knew it was getting ready to tell me what I was going to have to do in the future, and I'd already made up my mind I wasn't going to pay any attention to it at all. I'm glad to find out they're not going to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We're not going to try to tell anybody what they ought to do sexually. We're not going to try to make a moral issue out of it or what's right or what's wrong. And I think the reason for that is because this book is meant to be helpful to any human being anywhere, anytime. And if we start trying to tell people how to conduct their sex life, then certainly we're going to begin to alienate people. Besides that, what is 
sexually acceptable in one part of the world may not be acceptable at all in another part of the world. So we're not even going to get into that issue. What we are going to do is we're going to see a set of directions on how to look at our own past sex life, see if maybe we've hurt some people through that, see if maybe that hasn't filled us with a little shame, fear, guilt, and remorse, and see if maybe we can't shape a new sex life for the future where we can still engage in it, enjoy it, yet at the same time not end up hurting other people. This is not a list of dirty, filthy, nasty items. We're just going to look at our own past sex life. So we see basically the same set of instructions in the next paragraph to look at our sex life as we did for resentments. Maybe it's the ability to make the decision to have sex whatever we want that got me in trouble because as most uh, young american boys of my age and uh, demeanor i really liked pursuing the opposite sex when i was younger and alcohol fueled that it made a lot of my fears and insecurities melt away as many have said i was the life of the party or at least i thought it's probably the idiot of the ball but it wasn't until I realized that in recovery, I can have a deeper and more important relationship that things got better. We will spend the next couple of weeks, as I said, still reviewing this. We have to do this part of our step four. So until next time. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode as much as I did. If you'd like just the raw Joe and Charlie portion of the podcast, that is available on our Patreon site. The link to that is available on our website or in the pinned comment. Until next week, this is the Big Book Living Alive, Joe and Charlie podcast.